the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Situation Report today. Very glad to have you joining me in this very important conversation. My name is Jeremy Stonlecker. I am your host. And this is the show where we do our very best to give you the information and perspectives you need to navigate an ever-changing culture. A topic that we have been discussing, much of the world has been discussing for the last couple of months, and we will probably continue to come back to this over the next several months, is the topic of the war in Ukraine. Uh, Russia and Ukraine fighting over the land, uh, really trying to understand, and this is what we're trying to understand, uh, what it is exactly they're fighting over. But Russia trying to take back what they believe belongs to them, Ukraine trying to prevent that from happening. If it's that simple, then that is kind of my summation of what's taking place there. But it's much more complicated than that. And if we don't understand the historical relationship between Russia and Ukraine, if we don't understand the relationship historically between the United States and Russia, the international community and Russia and Ukraine, if we don't understand these pieces, what has happened up to this point, what led to the actions we've seen over the last several months, then really our view of what should be done next will be skewed. It will be off. And I think for many people in the West, we lack a historical basis or an historical basis from which to make the right decision. Uh, We see conversations happening around us of uh, the United States sending troops to Ukraine and then others saying that we should not. Uh, Conversations about how the international community should support Ukraine, whether it's pulling them into NATO or not. What does all of this look like? Why does it matter? Uh, What is the historical foundation for understanding all of this? Uh, This is a very, very complicated issue. I'm so grateful today to have on someone who understands it historically uh, better than most. Dr. Sean McMeekin is with us, and he has spent his life studying and writing about Russia and the relationships that Russia has with the rest of the world. So honored to have him on with us for today's episode of The Situation Report. Very excited to have on as my guest today, Dr. Sean McMeekin. He is the Francis Flournoy Professor of European History and Culture at Bard College uh, on Global and International Studies, Russian and Eurasian Studies. Um, Man, this is a big topic, and particularly right now, I'm very, very glad to have someone who has thought about these things and written about these things. Uh, Dr. McMeekin is also the author of several books, including The Ottoman Endgame, War Revolution, and The Making of the Middle East, the Russian Revolution, A New History, and Stalin's War, A New History of World War II, which I just picked up and look forward to uh, getting into. Dr. McMeekin, thank you so much. Uh, really honored to have you on. Thanks for your time. Well, thanks for having me on, Jeremy. It's great to be here. This is a, this is a crazy time, obviously, in, uh, in Russia, Ukraine. I want to talk about uh, a lot of that. But before we get there, uh, maybe for our listeners, you can give us a little bit of your background. Uh, you have a fascinating bio. You've done a lot of interesting study. Your writing has been 
uh, very well received. And uh, as a student of history, some of your positions um, on World War II, even World War I, uh, different than I've heard before, and I'm excited to get into it. Can you talk about your background a little bit and how you became interested in this particular area of study? Well, sure. Um, I'm often asked this, and I'm, I don't really have family history as such that is wrapped up in the affairs of Russia or, or the Ukraine or really far eastern Europe. Uh, I mean, my ancestry is mostly actually kind of Irish and, and German, if, if anything. Um, mm. it, it was rather more the background of growing up against the backdrop of dramatic events at the end of the Cold War in the late 1980s. And I had a couple of history teachers who really just turned me on to the subject. Uh, I had one history teacher in high school who was a Korean War veteran, taught me American history. I also had the European history teacher and the the kind of the timing of it just could have been more fortuitous literally uh, as the Berlin Wall of course came down and the Soviet Union collapsed I was just becoming a, a more serious student of history there was even an exhibit um, the Library of Congress 1992 revelations from the Russian archives and to some extent that kind of angle that is material opened up from the Soviet from the Russian archives, yeah. not previously available to researchers. That's kind of been a leitmotif of most of my work over the past 20 or 30 years, trying to go in and find these buried secrets, um, trying to penetrate mm. the mysteries of, of 20th century history, and not only Russian history, but that is to say any of these stories, whether it's the First yeah. World War, the Second World War, even more recent history, that we wouldn't previously really have understood to some extent one whole side of the story. You know, So that's really where I'm coming from. I, yeah. I, I guess I've been called a revisionist, and <laughs> I think that's a little bit of a simplification of what I do, but that said, there's definitely something to it. I do try to revise our understanding of seemingly familiar events um, by uh, digging into the archives and trying to find fresh material and, and new sources. Well, it's great. I, I think if we view history as something that's static, we'll never fully know the story. New information comes available, as you've mentioned, and uh, I've I've studied World War I some. A lot of what I understand about World War I is from uh, the Guns of August, uh, honestly, and, and some of my you know, battle history of World War I. World War II I've studied extensively, but uh, your view on Stalin and his involvement, and uh, I'm really excited about looking at that because it makes so much sense. <laughs> and, and yeah, we haven't had a lot of people talk about it. So uh, very excited about that. Um, talk to us a little bit, if you can. Again, we'll get into the specific topic, but... You've devoted your life to history, to understanding history, and to understanding current events in light of history. This is something that I believe, personally, is absolutely missing from our current discourse on everything, whether it be race relations, um, we talk about gender stuff, we talk about the history of the United States and what we're dealing with culturally, economically. We are not good at all, and maybe it's just us as a country, but we're not good at all at looking at history and allowing history to inform some of our opinions. Just broadly, kind of big picture, can you talk to, to that a little bit, why history is so important if we're going to navigate these very complex issues in the right way? Well, I think it's it's incredibly important, and, and you're talking about, to some extent, domestic issues, sure, but particularly when it comes to international affairs, where Americans, we're not really known necessarily for our sophisticated grasp of geography, nor are we necessarily right, known sure. for yeah, right, right. our grasp of the history of countries other yeah. than our own. I mean, to give you an example, so I'm sure we'll have plenty of time to come back to Russia and Ukraine, but the, the thing I'll just, I'll, I'll begin with um, is that when uh, Russia's invasion began in late February, to a lot of Americans, this came as this kind of bolt from the blue. Where did the story come from? Suddenly, it's kind of flashing on the screens and the headlines. 
Um, but a lot of Americans have forgotten that as recently as eight years ago, there was a conflict yeah. which began in Ukraine. Yeah. And in fact, that the conflict was kind of brewing the whole time, and, and there's been fighting and, of course, shelling across uh, the armistice or the uh, – not really even borderlines. Uh, according to the international maps, is all part of Ukraine. But, of course, the breakaway districts of Lugansk and, and Donetsk or, or the Donbass, as we usually call it in English, um, that these events in Crimea – and, of course, even there, you have to go back to understand the history of Ukraine, but also the history of – something like NATO expansion, the end of the Cold War, the treaties negotiated between 1990 mm. roughly and 1994, the ways in which some of those things were revised, then understand what Russians and Ukrainians are both fighting about and arguing about. You have to understand the history of the 20th century, the Khrushchev right. period, the Second right. World War, really going all the way back to the Russian Revolution. Um, to have any kind of a grasp of what's going on, what the stakes are, what the likely outcomes are, you simply have to grapple with, with the history. Yeah. I was in uh, I was in Ukraine in 2018. I actually I, I work for a veterans organization. We work with folks who are dealing with trauma, and so we went there to assist um, local groups that were trying to help active duty military folks in Ukraine. They brought them to some safe places off the border. Anyhow, uh, we went there in 2018. Did it again in 2019. Spent about a month there each time. But the first time I was there, I had no idea about you know what had happened in 2014 and. All that transpired there, we stayed at a hotel right there um, in Kiev off Independence Square and just walking around looking at the monuments and seeing everything, uh, understanding really as an American that there was a war going on. <laughs> and, and, and I had no idea um, what little Russian I knew I would try to use. And, um, you know, very patriotic Ukrainians would not even respond because of uh, really the hatred between the two countries, certainly Ukraine to Russians. Uh, I learned about uh, Holodomor and the the Holocaust in the 30s. I had no idea any of these things had, had happened. Um, and it's fascinating that more people don't know. So you're right, when the war starts, we have no idea where this even began or why they're mad at each other. Right. Um, can, can you talk to that, the relationship, and you don't have to go back, you know, 2,000 years, but the relationship between Russia and Ukraine, and they both have a very different view of their role in the world. Both view themselves as um, really sovereign nations who should be in control of the land that Ukraine claims. Can you talk to that history a little bit? Well, sure. I mean, there's a shared inheritance to begin with. Um, if you go back to what is sometimes called the Ur, or sort of the original foundational Russian state or medieval Rus, Kievan Rus. So Kiev, as it's called now, was this original kind of, of seat of empire. But because of the Mongol invasions, which particularly began in the 13th century, and then the occupation in many areas of what is now Ukraine and Russia lasted for another two centuries after that. Mm. This period of a golden horde, as it's often called in Russia, lingering on effects that in, in Ukraine, in places like Crimea, which was still ruled by these Khans who were vassals of the Ottoman Sultan yeah. for many centuries. So that the re the reconquest of, well, not even the reconquest, to some extent, the, the Russian push south, this proverbial push to the south you might have heard of with, sometimes it's kind of almost... Uh, somewhat simplistically referred to as this drive for warm water markets. But in, in Russian historical terms, part of what it was also about was a bit like the Reconquista in Spain, that is, uh, the Christian Empire reconquering lands in the south. So Ukraine's a, it's a classic borderland, and it's not just a borderland between east and west, between Europe and, and Russia. Russia up to the Urals is still considered more or less European, and then, of course, Asiatic Russia. But it's also a north-south borderland, that 
is between mm. the Christian peoples of the north, some of whom were able to escape the ravages of the Mongol invasions a little bit better because of the location of, of, of their dwellings. Um, but then further south, where there was a longer kind of a lingering after, after effect of those invasions, um, you then had the, almost the classic border people, the ones we usually call Cossacks, and in fact much of the kind of modern Ukrainian identity actually goes back to these, the Cossack kind of freebooters or free men, uh, some of whom had been serfs who escaped, some of whom just kind of a, a little bit like our almost our notion of the Scots-Irish, this kind of yeah, ornery right. border peoples. And so there's mm. a real pride there. Um, but of course, also they played a role in Russian history. The Cossacks were usually, not always, but there were different periods in which they were either collaborating with or collaborating a bit less closely with Tsarist Russia. That is, they were also kind of loyal adjutants of the empire. And the Russians, of course, saw all this as part of their history, where Russia shed so much bled in and over and, 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 and throughout Ukraine. A whole war was fought in the Crimea. We usually call it the Crimean War. The Russians just called it the Great Eastern War in the 1850s. Mm. And so to Russia, and Crimea, of course, had been part of Russia going back to the, the time of Catherine the Great. So again, Russians see it as part of their history. Right. Whereas right. Ukrainians, of course, are going to say, well, look, you know, we have our own sort of national story, our own epics. And you mentioned Holodomor. This is obviously a huge part of it for modern Ukrainians. They remember the suffering under Stalin, this forced yep. terror famine or hunger famine of the early 1930s when they collectivized agriculture. Curiously, you talk about how little people in the West know about it. There was a movie that came out in 2020 uh, about this famine called Mr. Jones. The title refers mm. to this character from Animal Farm which is apparently named after uh, a Welsh-British journalist and former advisor to David Lloyd George called Gareth Jones. And it was jointly financed by Ukraine and Poland to get this story out about some of Ukraine's suffering in the Stalin period. But of course, not being a big Hollywood production, also probably the timing wasn't great. It came out in 2020. I don't think it made a huge dent in the public consciousness of the West. Uh, But this is, of course, a huge story in Ukraine. Then you flip it around, the Russians... They maybe don't deny that something like this happened in the 30s that Ukrainians suffered, but they remember the Second World War, and so they'll remember right. the history of collaboration with uh, with the Nazi invaders, not just the Germans, but Romania, Hungary, and, and Germany's other allies uh, in that war. Uh, so there's a lot of contested history. Um, I mean, it's it's increasingly violently contested, yeah. um, but uh, but very rich, and I think it, it does it does pay to study that history to better understand what's going on today. I'm not sure if you've been to the men's department lately, but men are being held hostage by overpriced brands that simply aren't mission tested. That's why we're excited to tell you about Undertack, the only brand that's literally been battle tested by special forces. These have to be the greatest boxers ever made because they cover all the bases. High quality material that's antibacterial, anti-pilling, and moisture wicking so you stay fresh and dry all day. A quick release fly in a secret pocket in the extra wide waistband for cash or tactical necessities. Undertack is durable, ultra light, fade resistant, and shrink resistant. And here's the best part. They're almost 30% less than the competition. Go to getundertack.com. That's getundertack.com right now. Save 20% off your order with the offer code SITREP20. All one word, SITREP20. Satisfaction guaranteed or your money back. This is a great American company that's unapologetically pro-America, pro-Second Amendment, and pro-military. That's getundertack.com, getundertack.com, offer code SITREP20.
Um, the United States has had an interesting history with Russia as well, and I think most people would be at least familiar with the Cold War and, and some of that um, you know, our relationship with Stalin in World War II, which eventually would lead into the Cold War and the things that have happened since then. Uh, it's been a very interesting relationship. And now we're at a time where we have uh, decided uh, politically or administratively that we're not even going to work with Russia. They are the enemy. Um, how does our relationship, whether it's in the past or now, how does all of that play together historically? It's it's hard to understand how we've arrived at this position. Um, and it seemed like almost on a dime we turned and said, uh, we're done with them. <laughs> Shut everything down. We're not in Russia anymore. We hate them and we always have. How did we get to that place? Well, that's a fascinating question and not really an easy one to answer, Jeremy. I mean, to give you an example of just how bad things are now as far as U.S.-Russian relations, um, I actually just advised a senior project, uh, a wonderful student, as a prize-winning paper, and, and she was looking at the history of ballet in the Cold War. And among other things, her project dealt with uh, the history of of, a, of an American ballet, which was touring Russia, and was actually there during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And yet, they actually emerged, and everything was more or less fine, tense and dangerous mm. as things were. Whereas now, of course, we're shutting down anything Russian. I mean, you're talking right, about right. Uh, directors of, of ballets, uh, conductors of orchestras, Russian products, Russian restaurants. It's all being done at, at a level mm. more extreme than, than anything really that happened during the Cold War. Um, and I think some of this is, but Ukraine obviously is part of this. The Ukrainian cause has kind of excited the American imagination, and, and that's understandable. And I think there's this idea of kind of backing the underdog. Um, but as far as where the tensions come from, I mean, I did live through uh, some of this post-Cold War period. Yeah. Um, I was in Moscow, for example, during the Kosovo War in 1999. Um, I got into a bar fight. I can spare you the, the details of it, but let's just say Russians were not particularly happy with uh, the 19, then 19-member 19 uh, alliance of, of NATO uh, bombing yeah. Serbia, one of Russia's historic clients and allies, of course, going back to, among other things, the First World War. Right. Um, this idea that kind of, yes, Russia agreed to recognize Ukraine's borders as inviolable in the so-called Budapest Memorandum 1994 in exchange for Ukraine giving up its nuclear weapons but it was done under duress at a sure. time when Russia was sure. collapsing, when Russia was kind of prostrate and humiliated. Uh, and then the Americans, to some extent, rubbed the wounds in further with the Kosovo War, with NATO expansion into the former Soviet sphere, including even the three Baltic countries, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia. You can't blame them for wanting protection from the Russians. But of course, from the Russian perspective, you know, these were three constituent members of the Soviet yeah. Union who were now a member of a hostile military alliance. And, and there was some talk both under Gorbachev and later on in the late Yeltsin, even really in the early Putin years, is like, well, could NATO be re-envisioned, perhaps reimagined? Maybe even Russia could join? I mean, Gorbachev asked that at one point. Putin even asked Clinton. According to Putin, he asked Clinton about this. And, of course, they were brushed off. You know, And there is a little bit of this contradictory narrative about NATO that on the one hand it's a, a voluntary defensive alliance that any country can join. That's kind of the official party line. 
on the other hand, obviously Russia can't join because it's obviously right. directed against right. the Russians, and so the Russians know this, and everyone kind of knows that's the case, but no one mm. will really quite state it out loud. <laughs> right. um, and in the same way that Ukraine, I actually heard a statement made. I mean, this it, it, the, the consequences are tragic if this is true, but that uh, Zelensky was apparently told at some point last winter, and I don't think this is directly by the Biden administration. I think it was kind of through back channels, through NATO headquarters, that that uh, Ukraine would not actually join NATO, but that mm. this would not be made public. And I think they got that precisely backwards. You know, had they actually said, look, we can neutralize Ukraine and say Ukraine will not be a member of, of NATO so long as I suppose she's given certain assurances from the Russian side. Um, instead, I suppose we created the worst of all worlds. I mean, yeah. we kind of hyped yeah. up these Russian anxieties and fears, but we didn't actually provide a real security guarantee to Ukraine. Um, and again, to get back to the historical analogies, I mean, this, this one I have actually written about a little bit. Uh, it, it, it is a little bit analogous to what happens with Poland in 1939, where Britain and France extend these so-called mutual assistance pacts. And the Poles thought that meant they were actually going to fight Germany on their behalf. When push came to shove in, in September 1939, they didn't really help. Um, I mean, we've heard about the phony war, right? I mean, after yeah. very little happens on the Western Front over the next nine or ten months, Britain and France don't really help Poland. In the end, they offered these seeming guarantees, which convinced the Poles to stand strong and not to negotiate, and we will fight and we will fight, and there's nobility in that. And, and to some extent, you could say that the Poles can stand proud today in the same way Ukrainians can. Well, yep. look, you know, we, yep. we fought for our country. On the other hand, you kind of wonder about the responsibility of these Western powers, which may have extended these misleading, I think, security guarantees. I, I think there's a real tragedy there. One of the big players, obviously, is um, Vladimir Putin. Um, and he's an enigma, I think, to people in the West as well, um, which I think causes some confusion over his motives, what it is he's trying to accomplish. Um, we hear a lot of talk of overthrowing his regime, and you know all these things are happening. Um, to say who is Putin would be to ignore the fact that he's been in office as long as he has. But uh, who is he right now? <laughs> and what what are his aims or what are his goals? He's held off for so long. He's talked about this for so long. A lot of saber rattling. But he finally took the step. What's his goal right now? Well, again, a great question and a difficult one uh, to answer. Um, there's, there's been a lot of almost hysterical talk about Putin and some potential long-range ambition he has to either reconstitute the Soviet Union or maybe even move beyond its borders. I don't think any of that is necessarily true. I mean, even even the one of the most famous Putin quotes, the one about uh, the fall of the Soviet Union being allegedly the, the great geopolitical catastrophe or the different translations of the 20th century, um, he, was, he wasn't talking necessarily in a kind of Catholic universal sense. Rather, what he meant was it was a tragedy for the Russian people, in part because so many of them were stranded beyond Russia's borders. And that in itself is somewhat alarming. It does suggest that a bit like, let's say, Nazi Germany between yeah. the wars, you have the problem of the Russians abroad and potential for irredentism. But I don't think Putin has ever really given a sign 
that he wants to try to reconquer Central Asia, for example, or reconquer even necessarily the Baltic states. Obviously, he's dismayed and discombobulated that they join NATO, but I don't think he sees them as inherently Russian territory necessarily. Um, now, as far as kind of who he is and where he's going, um, again, it's it's obviously hard to read. Um, uh, it's clear that on the one hand, uh, most of what remains of the opposition media in Russia has been shut down. Um, I think we in the West had this fantasy that there was going to be this popular uprising to overthrow Putin's regime. I do think most people have, have by now been disabused of that mm-hmm. illusion. Uh, there, there were even a couple of opinion polls back in late March and early April. I haven't seen the latest figures showing that uh, Putin's approval rating, while it was a, a little bit shaky in the first days after the invasion, actually shot straight up into the 80s. That is to say, wow. he's more popular now than wow. he's probably been almost at any point in the last decade. Yeah, and wow. those numbers may not be accurate in some in some absolute sense. But the trend line is pretty clear, that is, that his popularity is cresting again. And I think a large part of the reason for that is not necessarily that the war is going that well for Russia, rather that by turning it into this existential struggle between Russia and the West with the sanctions and the rhetoric, and I mean, Biden talking about kind of Putin is a war criminal yeah. and, you know, he cannot yeah. remain in power. Yes, some of this has been walked back by White House advisors, but the statements were made. It was pretty clear that the U.S. is playing for this kind of big game of actually trying to topple this regime. I mean, even the the State Department and some of these ex-CIA guys writing in places like Foreign Affairs about how they want to turn Ukraine into Afghanistan and bleed Russia, you know, they read that stuff. And so the Russians see this now as something of an existential struggle between Russia and the West. And, you know, there are these philosophers, people like uh, Dugin, who's sometimes called Putin's brain. They're not necessarily really that closely entwined, but some, some of these Russian chauvinists have always wanted Putin to kind of embrace his inner chauvinist and Russia's destiny in the East and Asia, uh, closer relations with China. Some of that is already happening, and also relations with India having, of course, escaped the uh, the, the the reaction of the West with, with the strict sanctions, which India is not necessarily obeying. But I think the thing to remember about Putin, though, is that I don't think he's celebrating any of this. You know, that is Russia being cut off from the West, isolated once again. I mean, he comes from he comes from Petersburg. You know, this is a city founded as a window on the West. He studied German, mm. not Chinese. You know, he, among other things, he spent many years in Germany. Um, his years in the KGB, I mean, he was a Soviet patriot or Russian patriot, obviously. Um, but his whole kind of career has really been defined by Russia's relations with the West, uh, a lot of it oppositional, of course, opposition to NATO. That is, I don't think Putin is this chauvinistic caricature that people have where yeah. he relishes all of this. I think it's a little bit more like almost this idea of like fatalism, that Russia's been trapped in this situation and, and now she's trying to make the best of it. Um, so, no, I don't think there... I mean, as far as Ukraine, certainly I think Putin is trying to create a land bridge to Crimea and there's some talk of pushing on towards Odessa and Transdenistra and maybe Moldova. And I, I don't have a crystal ball as regards Russia's specific ambitions on, on the map. There are obviously some signs of that, that they want a larger chunk of the Donbass. But no, I think the idea that he's going to kind of march on to Berlin, I mean, I think that's a fantasy. I I don't think that's anywhere in the cards. As you know, our friend Mike Lindell has a passion to help everyone get the best sleep of your life. He didn't stop by simply creating the best pillow. Now Mike has done it again by introducing his My Slippers. 
For a limited time, you will save $90 on a pair of my slippers. This blowout sale of the year won't last, so order now. Mike has taken two years to develop the my slippers, and they are designed to wear both indoor and out all day long. Made with my pillow foam and impact gel to help prevent fatigue, they are also made with quality leather suede. Call 1-800-870-0283, use the promo code SITREP, or go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener square, and use promo code SITREP. This offer will not last long, so order now with promo code SITREP at MyPillow.com. The, the other player, of course, and there are a lot of them, but is uh, President Zelensky, and um, this may just be me. Maybe it's a lot clearer to other people, but I'm I'm not clear on even his ambition or his goal in the midst of this. Early on when this began, I assumed that a peace would be negotiated quickly, that Ukraine would give up some land to Russia, and that would be the end of it. And, and it obviously has not gone that way. Is Zelensky's aim more than just running Russia off of their land? <laughs> is it is it bigger than that? I, I, I Again, I don't know nearly as much as you do on this, of course, but I know talking to Ukrainians when I was in Ukraine and friends that I have there, Zelensky, I was in Ukraine when he was elected. He was not popular other than being a figure, an actor, um, not a necessarily popular president or politician, um, but people didn't think he was in Russia's bag, I guess. But now he is perhaps one of the most popular politicians, if not the most popular politician in the world. <laughs> um, what are his ambitions or what are his goal? What's his, what's his end game? Is it, is it just he's a patriot? He wants Ukraine to be a part of NATO, to have the protection and the safety they need. Um, what ultimately is he trying to accomplish? Um, well, again, I don't have a crystal ball, but as far as uh, NATO, my understanding is that Zelensky has indicated willingness to compromise on NATO, that is to renounce Ukraine's ambitions to join NATO, though not necessarily the ambitions to join the European Union, that is to be mm. accepted as a kind of integral mm. part of Europe. Um, a disarmament, obviously he's not going to stand for that. You know, He wants Ukraine to be able to defend itself. Right. I would assume that he's still trying to hold as firm as he can on territorial concessions. Um, uh, there's a question of, again, going back to the status quo ante prior to February 24th, the, the rough armistice lines that, as had existed previously, right. um, the question of whether Ukraine recognizes the then-existent Russian position in Crimea. I mean, I think obviously Zelensky would prefer not to do that. But, I mean, you do raise a really interesting point, and it's a parallel one, again, again with Putin, even though to some extent, the war is not going really tremendously well for either side. I mean, Ukraine in the early days, there was, well, this great surprise, almost euphoria at how well they're doing. The Russians are failing to take Kiev. There's a lot of celebration, almost euphoria. On the other hand, you have massive outflow of refugees, obviously tremendous damage to infrastructure, to the economy. But this tends to happen in wartime, as you're pointing out. Zelensky becomes the, the heroic war leader. You know, he is he is the... He is the kind of almost the, this archetypical. Uh, I talked about almost like this kind of the, the Scots Irish sort of. The, right, you know, the, right, we are these right. ordinary people, you know, who will fight <laughs> to the last man. I mean, I right. I had this uh, Ukrainian friend um, in my days when I used to live in Turkey, who uh, uh, he was the embodiment of this "we are not dead yet" kind of slogan <laughs> that so many Ukrainians have. And and yeah, he's tapped into that clearly. You're right. I think before before this this war began, and that that does make one wonder, both in the case of Putin and Zelensky, and I mean. 
uh, you could actually say something similar about the Biden administration or even Boris Johnson to some extent. I mean, look, wars are terrible for ordinary people, mm. for common people, but they're not necessarily the worst thing sure. uh, for governments because yep. – not just can you, of course, centralize power, but you know the arms industry is in clover. You know the orders go through. Suddenly, uh, you know NATO and and the U.S. defense and aerospace industry they're taking orders from Berlin and these other countries. And Sweden wants to join, and Finland wants to join. So it's a boon for NATO. Again, you think, and in the West, the narrative has been that this is all this crushing loss uh, for the Russians. Um, but there are a lot of contraindicators there as well. The ruble did plunge initially, but now the ruble is actually back well above where it was on February 24th vis-a-vis the dollar. In fact, they're almost worried that the ruble is becoming too strong. That <laughs> um, yes, they've been cut off from Western energy markets, and you know now they've, they're finding new markets in Asia, in India, and China. And, and again, although many ordinary Russians either feel cut off or aghast at what's happening or are trying to leave – a lot of other Russians are rallying to the throne, so to speak. They're rallying behind the government. Um, and yeah, I, you say the same thing about Zelensky. I mean, presumably, again, he's never been, as you said, as popular. I mean, he, he right. wouldn't have been this popular without the war, which uh, maybe makes him a little bit less likely to compromise, one assumes, on the negotiations. I mean, I, I think both sides will have to compromise if if any type of a lasting peace settlement is going to be here, and even that, unfortunately, might might well be a, a precarious and, and a dangerous peace, or a little better than an armistice. You don't have a crystal ball, <laughs> but if you did, and you could look into that, what would you project as um, the, the best possible solution to this? If if you could write out, this is how this chapter of this story is going to end, how would you line that out? Well, I think some of the seeds of an eventual settlement are, are now being sown. I mean, you have, for example, the first signals coming, I think, from, from Washington and even to some extent from Europe that the West might be willing to broker a settlement, whereas earlier mm. on it sounded like Ukraine was actually more willing to negotiate than her Western sponsors were. I think some of this is because the lasting economic fallout, particularly in Europe and the United States as well, with inflation and, and galloping fuel prices, but it's even more acute in Europe. This is obviously going to exert political pressure, yeah. I think, on, on the governments in the West and the U.S., particularly with midterm elections coming up. The economic consequences are severe. Right. Right. You know, so that might lead the West to put more pressure on Zelensky uh, to negotiate. Uh, but I think the other thing which is fueling that, which is a little bit less pleasant, I think, for most people in the West to think about, is that part of the reason they're more willing to negotiate is because uh, despite all those, those early reverses and, and seeming setbacks, the Russians actually seem to have righted the ship You know, after uh, basically reorienting their strategy away from Kiev right. and concentrating now more and more of their firepower in the Donbass. It's terrible for the people who are there in the trenches, the Ukrainians who are you know, under fire right now. Um, but it does right. look like the Russians have recovered their footing. I mean, we shouldn't forget, again, looking at the lessons of history. On one of these interviews, um, someone brought up the analogy of, of the Winter War, the Soviet invasion of Finland in 1939-1940. I talk about this a lot in Stalin's War, and it was famously a humiliation for the Soviet army with these Finnish ski snipers running rings around the Russians, and they became a great cause in the West and elicited sympathy, really even from Germany, but from almost all countries in the West, even from Mussolini's Italy, even FDR, who had been previously President Roosevelt, fairly friendly to Stalin and the Soviet Union, was suddenly getting on a soapbox and denouncing this Soviet aggression against this tiny little country that opposed her no harm, etc. The Finnish cause was as popular then 
And I mean, the Soviets were actually kicked out of the League of Nations in December 1939, something that never happened in Nazi Germany. Nazi Germany actually left voluntarily. <laughs> right? The Soviets were ejected for this right, brutal invasion. Right. And yes, the parallels are striking. But of course, the slightly less reassuring one that everyone forgets is that despite the humiliations and the setbacks, the Soviets actually won that war. You know, they imposed their terms on Finland, perhaps not, again, the, the maximal terms they might have first wanted, but they did essentially bludgeon Finland into a kind of submission, and Finland even became almost a metaphor in the Cold War, that she reinvaded with Nazi Germany and her allies. She then had once again in 1944 to accept Soviet terms, which included effectively a kind of Soviet veto over Finnish foreign policy, including neutral status. And that might be, to get back to Ukraine, mm. the seeds of some type of a settlement. That is to say, perhaps not closing the door to EU membership, but perhaps ruling out formal membership in the NATO alliance um, with some type of guarantees from the Russians, but also perhaps Ukrainian acceptance de facto, if not de jure, of some of the Russian positions in Ukraine. Um, I think both sides will, will have to give something up um, in order to reach a lasting settlement. Um, I certainly don't think it's in the cards in the near future, but I do think eventually uh, some kind of a settlement will have to be reached. Well, this is uh, such a complicated issue, and uh, what to me at least seemed simple in the very beginning, uh, it's become much more complicated because of you know the international response and all that's happening. Thank you for your analysis. Um, hopefully we can talk again on this, and again, hopefully it doesn't last you know, that much longer, and we'll be able to look back and, and maybe draw some lessons from that. Uh, you write on these things. Uh, you're focused on this. Where can people follow you, learn more about your work, read your work, get your work, and they certainly need to get your books? Well, I don't actually have a web page or a social media site. I suppose I'm, I'm not really that up to date when it comes to uh, uh, the modern self-promotion game. Um, but You're my books off. are all available on Amazon. I can find bookstores everywhere. And, and I do periodically publish uh, commentary online and venues such as uh, The Spectator or Spectator World, um, uh, Chronicles American Mind. Um, I've written for some of the broadsheets, Wall Street Journal. Uh, the New York Times once condescended to publish uh, – something that I wrote about in the Red Century <laughs> series. So, so there, there is a lot that's available online. Um, but generally speaking, yes, my books are all available uh, uh, on Amazon or at uh, Find Book Retailers, wherever they survive. So find the books and then Google Dr. Sean McMeekin, and you will find all of those articles that are out there everywhere. Um, really appreciate your time. Thank you for uh, what you do. Thank you for your writing and for spending a few minutes helping us understand this very, very difficult issue. Thanks for having me on, Jeremy. It was a great pleasure. Yes. Yes, sir. I appreciate the perspective from Dr. McMeekin. Again, this is a very complicated issue. I think for those of us in the West who have very little, if any, historical perspective on what's happening, uh, we can be confused. I, I know it's been confusing for me. I'm sure it has been for you. But understanding the history, the relationship between these countries and their relationship with the rest of the world can be very, very helpful. It helps to guide decisions. It helps for us as citizens of a country who is seeking to help to even understand where we should support and where we should push back, how we should respond. Uh, very, very grateful for this insight and understanding. Uh, appreciate you watching and or listening if you're listening and not watching. 
Thank you for doing that. Whatever podcast platform it is that you are listening from, make sure you are also subscribed. Very important that you subscribe. And that's how you will know as soon as these episodes come out three times a week, we are doing our best to push out new and helpful content. Again, our our goal is to give you the information and perspectives you need to navigate this culture. That's why we have guests on like our guest today to help us really navigate what's taking place. This can be a help to you and those that you know, make sure you are subscribed. And then Take some time, go over to YouTube. You can search for The Situation Report. You'll find our channel there. An archive of shows, over 100 shows are there. Uh, Incredible guests, great conversations. And again, that's a good place for you to be subscribed to also have hit that notification bell so you know when when that content comes online. But then beyond that, leave us comments. Share that content out. Uh, Some of these conversations like this one can be very helpful to the people that you know. Maybe you've had a conversation about this recently. Now you have an expert speaking on it. Send this along and that would be awesome. Thank you again for watching and or listening. We will talk to you next time. Many of you know that my day job is working for an organization called the Mighty Oaks Foundation. I've had the opportunity to work with the Mighty Oaks Foundation for a little over 10 years now and very grateful for that opportunity. I served in the United States Marine Corps and left in 2003. When I came back from Iraq and got out of the Marine Corps, I transitioned and had some of the same struggles that many of our veterans today have. Uh, That transition time can be very, very difficult. I moved on with the help and support of my family and others in my close-knit community and really, in many ways, tried to walk away from my service. It was too hard, too difficult for me to look back, to remember, to stay connected, and so I chose not to. About 10 years after I walked away, I was reconnected with many of the men that I had served with in Iraq and even before that Iraq deployment, and came to understand that so many of the men that I served with did not do well. I came home and I struggled, but I had a family around me and I had a community around me that helped me to get back on my feet and continue moving forward. So many of those that I had served with, however, did not have the same opportunity. They came home and didn't have that family around them, that community that could lift them up. And so they made some decisions, decisions that we talk about often in the veteran community. I was reminded about 10 years after my service that some of the men that I served with in Iraq came home and struggled and decided that it would be best for them to end their lives. Others who had not taken their lives, but who had struggled from one relationship to the next, from one job to another, and had never really gotten back on their feet. I learned after 10 years that walking away from my military service was not really an option. You see, we think we can hang our uniform in the closet for the last time and walk away, but our obligation to those that we served with remains. It was at that time that I had the opportunity to get connected to the Mighty Oaks Foundation. It was just getting started. I met our founder, Chad Robichaux, and together we began to work on what is today a national nonprofit serving veterans, active duty service members, and more and more the first responders in our community. That's what we do. You see, Chad served in the Marine Corps as well, and both of us have an understanding, and so many of the folks, many, many folks that work with us now who served in the military and in the first responder community understand that we may get out, we may hang the uniform up, but we still have an obligation to care for those who have served or are serving. 
That's exactly what we do at the Mighty Oaks Foundation every single day. We run programs across the country for those who have served, veterans, or are serving, active duty service members, those who are serving in their community as first responders, police officers and firefighters, and others in that first responder community. We serve them by helping them to understand that there is life beyond their service, that their identity should be wrapped up in more than a uniform or a job that they've done or are doing, that there is a purpose, that there is a plan. In fact, that God the Creator has something He intends for them, and that if they'll simply align their lives to the life that He has for them, so much of the trauma, so much of the difficulty, so much of their past, so many of those things that have a hold on them, they may not go away, but they won't maintain the hold and the control. Here's the message we try to convey and communicate. There is hope, and there is a community of people found within the Mighty Oaks Foundation that understand where you've been because we've been there. We don't have it all figured out. We're certainly not perfect, but we've taken some steps to move forward, and we want to take you with us. That's what we do. How do we do that? Again, by communicating the fact that there is hope, by connecting with others who've been there and know how to move forward, and by getting around you and supporting you as you begin to take those very important steps yourself. The Mighty Oaks Foundation is blessed to have supporters across the country that make it possible for us to do the work that we do at no cost to the veteran, the active duty service member, or the first responder. For you to attend our program, you simply need to set aside five days and come to one of our locations, one of our facilities. We'll do the rest. There will be no cost to you for the program, no cost for the transportation to get you to the program. We do all of the planning and all of the logistics. You simply need to get there. We want to remove every obstacle for you to get the help, the encouragement, the strengthening, <laughs> the hope, the renewal that you need. We're thankful for the opportunity to do that. Perhaps you are not a veteran or a service member. You're not in the first responder community, but you care about those who have served and are serving our communities. Well, you may fall into the other category then. Perhaps you're someone that can support what we do financially to make it possible for those folks to come along. Maybe your support is not financial support, but you know someone in your community, in your town, in your church, uh, in a club, or something else that you're a part of that could use this kind of support and encouragement. Plug them in. Let us help them. Let us get them on the road. No cost to them. We want to do the work, but we need you to get them to us. That was a lot of words. If you listen to the show, you know I say a lot of words sometimes. So let me point you to the one place where you can get all your questions answered. MightyOaksPrograms.org is our website. MightyOaksPrograms.org. There you will find more information about what we do as an organization. There's an application for those who would like to apply. Fill that out, application out. Our team will get back to you, set everything else up. If you would like to support the work of the Mighty Oaks Foundation, you'll find a place to do that there as well. And there is also a section for resources. So many of you know people who need help but may not start by coming to a program, attending a program, but they would read a book, they would watch a video, they would listen to a testimony. We have those resources there for you as well. So please come and join us at the Mighty Oaks Foundation Foundation's website, mightyoaksprograms.org. Our veterans, active duty members, and first responders need our support. Maybe you're in that category. You need our support. And that begins by going to the Mighty Oaks Programs website, mightyoaksprograms.org.
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.